Welcome to Straight Talk for Real Life, produced by Hewlett Packard Enterprise, episode number four. In this episode, we take a hard look at addiction and the power of recovery. Please don't miss this one, especially if you or someone you know is affected by drug or alcohol dependency. And take heart, in many cases, this story has a happy ending. Welcome to Straight Talk for Real Life. I'm Bob Peacock. At HPE, through programs like this podcast, we want to talk about issues that are affecting you and your family so that we can break down the stigmas that may be stopping you and people you care about from opening up and getting the help you need. In this episode, we're going to talk about substance use addiction, one of the major health issues affecting every region of the world today. It is estimated that 164 million people are addicted to alcohol or drugs. And because alcohol is legal almost everywhere in the world and it's relatively easy to obtain, alcohol is one of the biggest addictions, with an estimated 107 million people globally who are said to have an alcohol dependence. To help us understand addiction and treatment options, we'll be talking with two experts. First, Dr. Andrew Mendenhall is a board-certified doctor in addiction medicine and family medicine from Portland, Oregon. Dr. Mendenhall has a long list of accomplishments from co-founding an outpatient treatment center called HealthWorks Northwest, which became part of the Hazleton Betty Ford Foundation, to serving as regional medical director for a network of 24 substance use disorder practices across the states in North America. And when he's not serving as a family practice doctor, he's also chief medical officer for Central City Concern, which is a nonprofit agency in the Portland area that serves people impacted by homelessness, poverty, and addictions. We also have Blake Cohen on the line with us, who is the National Outreach Manager for an innovative treatment program here in the U.S. called Recovery Unplugged. I can't wait to hear more about this program, which, according to its website, provides hope and healing for individuals affected by addiction using the power of music. Welcome to both of you. Uh, in this podcast, I want our discussion to address both the problem and the solution. So, um, Andy, I'm going to start with you. Let's, let's really start with the basics. In its simplest terms, I've heard addiction defined as when you can stop, you don't want to, and when you want to stop, you can't. But this isn't a simple issue, is it? You know, Bob, it's not. I think you've done a great job characterizing that. One of the most core ways of thinking about substance use disorders is that the root of all substance use disorders is a pressure in the person who's using substances to feel different, a pressure to feel different. And when we consider the spectrum of addiction and the, the spectrum of addictive disease, we like to talk about substance use disorders as having a mild, a moderate, and a severe state. So. What we traditionally think about addiction, which is the compulsive use of substances despite catastrophic consequences or harm, we're really characterizing a severe substance use disorder. But it's important to note that many people are touched by their relationship with substances that they use, they lean on, in a way that doesn't always serve them well. So as we work to destigmatize this condition, it, it's important to recognize that many people suffer 
significantly from substance use disorders that are still functional but still have a very strong desire to continue to maintain their relationship with a substance that's no longer serving them. So, Andy, as far as, as alcoholism goes, is that a disease? Is it correct to be termed a disease? It's a great question, Bob. It's, and if we look at the literature, there's, there's been some debate. Um, I am, I am a, a strong believer, um, as is uh, the vast majority of uh, those that work in this field, um, that we talk about the disease state of addiction as exactly that. It, it is a disease. It is a biological disease state that involves brain tissue. We know through PET scan imaging and through functional MRI imaging that the drives of human behavior, the imprint, and the biological consequences of substance use play out in the tissue of the brain and in other parts of the body as well. So I, I very much consider the, the disease of addiction um, a disease, and I think that's important framing. What's most important and gives me a, a great sense of hope is that this is a treatable disease, that recovery is possible, and by bringing together both behavioral health interventions, self-management, and in certain circumstances, the use of medications to support recovery, uh, it's really hopeful. This is a treatable disease. That's great. And Blake, I want to bring you in on this conversation too. Is there a difference between uh, alcohol addiction and alcohol dependence, or are they basically the same thing? Well, I think it's just two different states. I think it's a progressive illness is, is what we always talk about it. So alcohol addiction and alcohol dependence, uh, I mean, it's they're very similar in what you're saying. Um, I think it's just a progression. So the alcohol addiction part is when all the different characteristics of addiction, all the behaviors that go along with the addiction outside of the actual drinking to support the drinking are in place. The alcohol dependency also can be referring to the physical need for alcohol. For alcohol. Got it. So that the dependence is really the physical need that if you do not have it, you're going to have withdrawal symptoms. And then the addiction side of it, I'm looking at it as more of the, the behaviors that are surrounding the, the need to drink. So how does it happen? You know, that's a, a tough question, Bob. I, I think that there are so many different ways that it could happen, and people often wake up finding themselves addicted over the course of long-term use. Uh, nobody, you don't notice in the moment, and, and I don't mind saying this, that I'm in recovery. I've been in recovery since New Year's Eve 2012, so I've gone through my own addiction issues, hmm. and I... I didn't know what was going on during the process of using substances. I didn't realize, well, today I'm a little bit more addicted than I was yesterday. It, it didn't seem like that. It was all of a sudden one day having the realization due to consequences, due to family intervention of going, wow, I've got a, I've got a problem here. I can't stop as much as I want to. Um, I'm doing things that are outside of my character. This is, this is not good. I don't know what to do. So. It's hard to say how or why somebody ends up there. Uh, I think it's very different, and there could be it could be related to mental health issues. It could be related to trauma. It could be related to starting as a social user and enjoying that feeling a little too much, mm -hmm. and continuing on and using day after day. I mean, there's so many different ways. So, just statistically, all over the world, men are more likely to become dependent on alcohol than women. 70% of people with alcohol use disorders are men. 
Andy, why is that? Bob, it's difficult to really give a great explanation uh, on a worldwide basis relating to why severe alcohol use disorder is more prevalent um, in males. There are likely a variety of different factors, everything from uh, social acceptance uh, to who has the resources to, to spend the money uh, on the alcohol to the nature of, of marketing and societal constructs. Uh, what's interesting to note in, in North America is that uh, that number is not quite as disparate between men and women. And unfortunately for women who have uh, severe alcohol use disorders, their, uh, their physical trajectory and their mental health and behavioral trajectories and outcomes um, actually are, are accelerated um, in terms of harm and outcome. And a lot of that has to do with um, the differences in terms of how women's bodies process uh, or metabolize, rather, alcohol. When you think of someone who is addicted to alcohol, you might kind of jump to a profile in your mind. Uh, and that profile is probably wrong. So, Blake, what is the, the actual profile of someone that you see at your treatment centers? There is no such thing as a profile for anybody who struggles with addiction. Addiction does not discriminate. And, that, and that's a big part of the work I do trying to tackle stigma surrounding addiction. There is no one-size-fits-all. There's no, there's no look-alike that a person looks like that has an addiction problem. Everybody pictures the stereotypical person under a bridge or someone trying to squeegee your windows while you're, you're driving. That is not the case. Addiction affects all walks of life from the extremely wealthy to the extremely, extremely poor. It, it doesn't matter where you come, what your background is. Anybody can be touched as a, 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 by addiction. Beautifully stated, Blake. I agree. This is very much a disease that does not discriminate. And um, no one gets out of bed um, intending to uh, lose control over their behavior. Um, and unfortunately, because of the stigma associated with our traditional beliefs of what addiction is and what addiction isn't, um, that tends to lead many people to avoid seeking treatment. And it tends to lead many people to seek treatment um, only once they, they really have uh, devastating consequences. Um, and there's an emerging body of evidence that, that reveals that, that people that are uh, demonstrating risky drinking behavior in particular, uh, that brief intervention early on does in fact uh, make an impact in terms of, of their choices uh, and, and uh, to a certain degree their trajectory as well. So Andy, is, is addiction caused by one's environment? There's this great TED talk uh, by Johan Hari that said, when we're, we're happy and healthy, human beings will bond together. But if you can't do that because you're traumatized or you're isolated or beaten down by life, you're going to bond with something that gives you a sense of relief. And that might be gambling or pornography or drugs and alcohol. Is there some truth to that? I think Blake did a, a great job characterizing some of the risk factors uh, that contribute to increasing the probability that somebody uh, may develop a substance use disorder. Uh, it's very true that um, adverse childhood events, uh, what we refer to as uh, ACEs or the Adverse Child Events Score, um, are directly associated with uh, a predictive probability for the development of, uh, of a substance use disorder. Um, and so adverse childhood events include things like uh, familial disruption, uh, tra 
trauma, um, untreated mental illness, and complications associated with that in the family. Um, there's a fairly sizable list. Um, but there's definitely a component, if you will, of, of nurture um, as well as, as a component of nature, and uh, meaning a biological predisposition um, as well genetically. And so uh, I think there's more and more evidence that the nurture component, or rather the lack of nurturance, um, is very salient in terms of, of risk and uh, the development of substance use disorder. You relating it back to Johan Hari's TED Talk and talking about the need to, to have a sense of community and a sense of belonging, I think that's more referring to the need, uh, the, the treatment of addiction and also the prevention of addiction long term. Yes. So yes. I think our community or our population, especially in America, is the most disconnected it's ever been. Uh, and what we are really yearning for right now, and especially the Gen Z, the millennial population, uh, which I'm a part of, don't hate me for that, um, <laughs> I, I think they are the most disconnected right now, and that is the population that we're seeing struggle the most with addiction. So Johan Hari's philosophy, uh, I think, is actually genius, uh, that we need to bring each bring ourselves together and we need to have a tribe, as so he calls it, mm -hmm. so that we can feel a sense of belonging and that we no longer feel the need to escape any longer. Very good. Andy, you had, had sort of touched on it, but just to, to make it super clear, can alcoholism be hereditary, something you can get from, from your parents or from grandparents? There is most definitely a genetic association. Um, there are over 150 different genes that are identified as being different in people um, who identify as having a severe alcohol use disorder. We're not able to put our finger on the one, uh, but what we can definitely say is that uh, there are biological factors, and then if we also consider the social factors uh, as well as we've, as we've noted, inclusive of social connectivity, uh, generational or intergenerational trauma and uh, that environment of nurturance, uh, these are all factors uh, that lead to that expression, if you will, uh, of that genetic code in a way that, that impacts behavior. Blake, from what you've seen, when do people realize that they are becoming addicted to drugs or alcohol? I think they realize it. Uh, it's usually from outside forces helping them see it. And I, I like to use myself as an example, not to out anybody else. I, you know, I like to use myself as an example. It was when my family started noticing and pointing out to me. It was when law enforcement decided to point out to me that I was struggling and doing things I shouldn't be doing. It's, it's when all the outside entities and things that are going on in my life uh, start come crumbling down, and they're all relating back to my substance use. I think with a lot of people, that's the same case. I think it's when it becomes glaringly obvious because there is, denial is a big part of addiction. Uh, you know, you hear it often referred to it when people discuss addiction. Right. And people often blame everything else who are struggling with addiction. They blame everything else besides the actual substance, whether it's alcohol or, or other substances. They blame everything else first before they come to the realization that it is actually the substances that are causing the majority of their problems. So it, it's tough. It's a tough thing to do to realize that you have a problem with substances. Um, 
but eventually when you do, it, it's glaringly obvious. Blake, you, you were talking about your family helping you realize that you had a problem. What are some of the, the warning signs? And, and I'm sure people going through it know, but what are some of those warning signs that, uh, that a family member might be seeing that there might be a problem? I think that's a really great question. And I think it's a lot more simple than most people think. Um, if you're seeing a person who is typically healthy, all of a sudden looking not healthy, looking, uh, losing weight, or looking, their skin colors changing colors, they have dark circles under their eyes. If they're always having money problems, unexplained money problems, and there's always some type of elaborate excuse as to why they need money again. Um, if their behavior is just strange and erratic, if they, they become emotional, their, their mood swings are all over the place, I think those are very, very clear signs um, that there might be a substance use disorder or maybe another mental illness. It's very possible that those all relate back to addiction or, or uh, sorry, depression or other things. Um, if somebody's appearance begins to really, they stop taking care of themselves, I think that's another good, good quality of somebody struggling with addiction. I guess another, another thing that, that families, uh, loved ones might see is uh, that, that you're kind of isolating yourself away from, from society, from the family, right? Yeah, so addiction is a very isolative disease. Uh, you, you have to, the brain begins protecting the person from anybody else discovering that they have this substance use disorder. So isolation is a great way to protect your use, basically, because if you're not around anybody else, nobody's going to know how bad it is, and nobody's going to assume you have a problem, and nobody's going to make you to stop, make you stop. Right. So isolation is a big thing. People really push away all of their loved ones, all of their friends, and either they are alone, which is how I coped with my addiction. I was alone. Um, or they start hanging around other people who are using which also kind of supports the behavior because you're around people who are using or doing the same thing. You don't feel as bad about your behavior. I do feel that uh, one of the challenges that, that many people working and living in America face um, is, is really related to that sense of social isolation, um, the uh, growing trend to work-life imbalance um, that is a known risk factor for uh, both mental health and substance uh, use disorder uh, development and progression. If I see that, what should I do? What can I do that isn't going to make that person isolate even further? That is a great question, and I love that. And because people are so afraid to approach their loved ones that are struggling with addiction or other mental illnesses because they're afraid of what the response might be, and you can't especially in today's days where people are dying left and right from this disease, you cannot be afraid to approach them and approach them in a loving way with compassion, not anger. Do not judge them. Do not yell at them. But approach them in a way that you are seeing these concerns, that you are concerned about them because you love them, and is there anything that I can do to help you? I'm always here to talk. Mm -hmm. what, what can we do? Mm -hmm. Now, that's a great first approach. But if the problem continues to persist, there's different ways to show love to somebody, and sometimes that is tough love. And sometimes you have to do things for that person that they cannot do for themselves. And sometimes that means an intervention. Sometimes that means getting them court-ordered to treatment. 
getting them court ordered into care. Sometimes that means a drawing a hard line in the sand that if you do not get help, that we are no longer going to support you uh, financially, whatever it may be. So there's a lot of different approaches, but I think the first step you want to take is just having a very real and honest and open and loving conversation with that person. I love that. I'd love to extend on that, Blake, yeah, please. if I could. Sure. Um, I completely agree with the idea that, that the first step is very much about outreaching. Um, I think for many family members, um, it's about understanding and even accepting that there is a problem um, with, a, with a child, with an adolescent, um, with, a, with a spouse, with a family member. Um, so acknowledgement and a willingness to um, see that truth um, which for many family members is oftentimes uh, seen, especially for parents, is potentially seen as a, as a failure of parenting. Um, so there, there are risks associated with uh, denial in uh, family members or loved ones um, who are working to support an individual struggling with a substance use disorder. Um, I like to coach family members uh, to, around two specific things. One is um, expressing a desire to spend more time together and, and being very methodical about it, right? And that can mean um, going out to eat. Um, that can mean um, going in the outdoors, uh, creating a, a positive disruption in what otherwise might be a cycle of isolation. And then, and then the second piece, and this is really important, is to recognize that there are many addiction professionals uh, who work in service uh, to families. And, and that, at one end of the spectrum, is intervention. Um, but there is also a huge uh, recovery support, uh, community-based recovery support uh, for family members uh, who um, have uh, loved ones affected by addiction. And I'm referring to... Uh, um, Al-Anon and Narcanon, uh, which is specifically uh, set up to facilitate mutual help, mutual support uh, for family members of those uh, affected by uh, substance use disorders uh, working to get into recovery. Um, it's important to recognize that this can be a very lonely space for, for family members as well because they simply don't know what to do. Right. You just, you just made so many great points. Uh, I, I love everything that you just said, and it's so true. Uh, I think the, the strange beauty in it, the, I guess the silver lining and the fact that there's so many people across the world who struggle with addiction, the silver lining is that, that that means that you are not alone, that whoever is struggling, whatever family, everybody has dealt with a very similar situation. There's guarantee you there's somebody out there who's dealt with it. And I know there's a lot of shame that goes along with this, this illness. That's a big part of this. And I'm not going to say that you shouldn't feel ashamed because that's like telling somebody not to feel pain if I step on your foot. You're going to feel shame, but it's about moving past that shame and doing what's right for yourself and for your family and just taking those steps towards, towards your family recovery as well as your loved one's recovery. And some people might have that friend or family member who is addicted to a drug or alcohol and they might think, oh, you, you should just stop using. Blake, realistic? Yeah, I, no, I, I wish it was that easy. Um, I, many people made that suggestion to me. Um, I wish I was able to listen to them. It, it's, it's not that easy. Uh, there's a lot of factors that go into getting sober, and it really ultimately has to be the person's decision. Um, 
it's it's so complicated and I'm going over in my head there's so many different things that that play into somebody getting sober and and that statement of just stop using um, to me that just that comes with ignorance of not knowing about the disease of addiction mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yep I agree I, I'd love to extend on that Blake um, as always really well said um, one of the things that we've not um, necessarily characterized is that is that being under the influence of substances and the reward state that a person with a substance use disorder is seeking is a really complex and very powerful biological state, meaning it, it gets anchored in the brain and the brain becomes biologically very attached to that state. And in that context, the person who's um, experiencing whatever it feels like for that individual uh, to be under the influence, they're experiencing a relief from the distress of life. They're experiencing a relief from the pain, from the trauma. And depending on the substance, they're also experiencing a relief from the consequences of chronic use. And we talked briefly about the sense of dependency, meaning physiologic dependency. Um, Substances, um, even substances like cannabis, are now being shown to create significant, long-lasting biological changes in the brain. Um, because it, what we say in, in, in human biology is what goes up must come down. There is a process of regulation of homeostasis um, that, that means that when the brain's reward chemistry programming goes up, meaning the, the reward chemical of dopamine with a little bit of epinephrine with a lot of serotonin, depending on the substance, when those chemicals go up in response to being under the influence or or creating the experience of being high, the brain goes through a process of shutting down the natural production of those brain chemicals and or shutting down the biological machinery of receptors within those very particular reward parts of the brain. So just quit seems like a, a gigantic leap for most patients who are, who are actively using and for whom cessation of use is associated with very significant physiologic mood and survival-based consequences. Uh, for many people in, um, with moderate to severe active substance use disorder, the concept and, and what I like to frame uh, for patients and families is is asking somebody to not use uh, their drug or drugs of choice is like asking somebody to take off their survival suit uh, when they are they are awash in in a frigid ocean. Hmm. We're we're asking that individual to peel away their safety net, or to peel away their life preserver um, in the context of life. So it's it's a very challenging and uh, and a very brave step for anyone who is moving in the direction of sobriety or making a commitment to sobriety um, because it takes place on the most deep biological and personal levels. One thing that, that I'd like to talk about too is as if addiction isn't hard enough, it can lead to other really serious issues like social issues like job loss or homelessness broken families, and as well as some pretty serious medical issues, heart disease, liver disease. 
Uh, and it's also estimated that the risk of suicide in an individual with alcohol dependence is around 10 times higher than in an individual without. Andy, can you talk about that? I would say just unfortunately yes to all of that. Mm. Um, the, it, I, I was doing a little bit of prep research and just uh, the opioid epidemic alone in the United States has a price tag of $280 billion hmm. per year. Um, we're, talking, we're talking across the spectrum of substance use disorder of nearly a trillion dollars of healthcare, criminal justice, and other social-related costs associated with this, um, this disease burden um, in the United States alone. So, um, you know, we can put a price tag on that. I can put a price tag on that. But the real cost is just in the human cost, the suffering, um, recognizing that one in four American families right now have a person who is actively struggling with, with a substance use disorder. And, and another statistic uh, from the National Survey of Drug Use and Health um, reveals that one in ten American children have a family member with an active alcohol use disorder uh, under the same roof as well. So this is a pervasive part of the human condition. It's a pervasive part of the human condition. And I at least have a lot of hope that, that we continue to prioritize um, this issue, both in terms of our social consciousness, uh, eliminating stigma, but of, of equal importance, um, recognizing that, that this is a, a disease state that, that warrants treatment, warrants good quality evidence-based treatment, and that means that um, employers and health plans, um, insurance companies um, are starting to see the value in, in providing access to these services as well. If someone is listening right now and they are struggling with an addiction, what do you want them to know? I think there's an easy answer to that one, Dad. I want you to know that their, their recovery is possible. and that to step into your fear, to lean into your fear, and just take that first step of just letting somebody else know that you're struggling and ask for some help. You're not alone. You don't have to do this alone. And one of the biggest things that I've seen in my recovery, so I, I, I kind of did just because I'm like this, I did almost a social experiment when I first got sober. And I continue to do this today. And I believe this is what led to my career, but I, I'm open about my recovery. I'm open about my past with addiction. And I have never once have anybody I've ever spoken to been condemned for it, been put down because I have an addiction history. I am always commended for, for getting the help I needed. So I promise you, if you all of the fear is in your head, if you just take that little chance to just put your hand out, I promise you there's going to be somebody there to help you, whether it's your HR in the company, whether you reach out to Recovery Unplugged, whether you reach out to me, to anybody, or a family member, it doesn't really matter. Just You can put your hand out to somebody, and there's professionals out there that can help you. Andy, is it is it possible to just quit without going through detox or a drug treatment center? Absolutely it is, and it's actually a very common pathway that does not get celebrated the way that um, that I'd like to see it, and, and many of my colleagues would like to see it celebrated. Um, I mentioned earlier that that um, brief intervention and brief counseling uh, can have a profound impact in uh, people's uh, uh, behavior. Um, 
Quoting, quoting a line from uh, the classic 12-step literature, we would say, progress, not perfection. Mm -hmm. Progress, not perfection. Um, it's really important for uh, people to recognize that help exists. More and more, that help exists in primary care offices. Um, I trained in the generation that got one hour on the disease state of addiction in my four years of medical school. Um, and I got a couple of days of training at a residential facility in my three-year residency program. Um, I was more prepared to put chest tubes in people as a family physician than I was to talk about um, the disease state of addiction uh, to my patients as a family doctor. Thankfully, that tide has changed. Thankfully, many primary care clinics um, and, and, and many uh, benefit plans uh, through EAP programs and, and, um, and through uh, larger health systems include access to social workers, certified alcohol and drug counselors. And, um, and, and what that means is that people have a variety of different ways of gaining recovery support, of having access to mental health treatment if they need that, substance use disorder treatment, um, so that patients can feel empowered in choosing their pathway into recovery. Um, they can actually take active steps um, to, to improve the course of their health over time. And there's a large body of evidence that, that about 40% of people with a substance use disorder um, self-remit, uh, meaning, meaning they pretty much do it on their own. I'd like to see more of those individuals at least get a little bit of help along the way. And I think that that's really what, what the transformation of, of the healthcare delivery system is, is starting to provide. In many countries, uh, particularly in Western Europe, um, America is, is, is learning uh, from those regions, um, recognizing that um, the, many of these best practices that we are just now starting to implement um, in the states uh, have been around and, um, and codified and researched for more than two, almost three decades um, over in Western Europe and in other parts of the country. So you often hear that a person has to hit rock bottom before they, they reach out and get help. Either they lose their job or they get arrested or uh, they have someone, a loved one, walk out of the relationship. Blake, is that true? Is that the case? I think that's a this fact that they say that people need to hit rock bottom. I think that's a very uh, old school uh, belief now is it true yes it, it's true in a lot of cases but the, there's also truth in that you can decide where your rock bottom is um, I see people getting clean and sober going to their first time in treatment when they haven't lost a job they haven't lost anybody of their loved ones yet and they're able to remain abstinent for for the rest of their lives um, or for as long as I've known them at least and then I've seen people go to 35 different treatment centers. They've lived under a bridge. They've, they've lost everything in their life. They have nobody, no money, no, no job, nothing. Um, it, it's really up to us sometimes to decide when our rock bottom is and when, are, when is enough enough. And when are we willing to make that change in our life? It's when the pain of using has got strong enough that is when we decide to make a change. And I, I just want to make a comment going back really quickly about can somebody get clean or sober on their own? Um, and I do believe, obviously, that's possible. I've seen it many, many times, and I don't think treatment is necessarily necessary for everyone. Uh, I do want to say, and I, and I think this is a just an important point to make, 
that you should probably consult a doctor before making that decision, depending on what you're using, how much you're using, and how physically dependent your body is, because it, it can be very dangerous to just stop a lot of different substances. Very good. Yeah, I really appreciate that, Blake. I think um, to polish the context uh, that I intended a little bit, um, it is possible for people to, to change their behavior and, and uh, become abstinent alone. I do think the opportunity to enter recovery is something that involves community. The opportunity to enter recovery is something that ideally should be passed through uh, the filter of professionals and experts, but that does not always necessarily mean having to leave your job for 30 days. Um, many people spend an hour or two a week uh, with some one-on-one -on -one counseling or they get a little bit of medical care. They get their depression or their anxiety treated and suddenly um, the use of substances seems a lot less interesting. So um, I really appreciate that call out, Blake, because we certainly want people to be safe. And, and most importantly, yes, it is possible for people to change their behavior alone, but more and more, thank goodness, they don't have to. They don't have to do it alone. Right. And I think it's important to be self-aware, too, that if you feel like trying these things on your own or with other people around, like a doctor's office or a therapist, if you see that it's not working, try to be self-aware enough to say, okay, as much as I don't want to, I, I need to go away to treatment. I need a little bit more, a little bit more protection, a little bit more accountability. I need to be somewhere safe for 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, however long it takes. So there are so many innovative ways to treat addiction these days. Blake, tell us about uh, Recovery Unplugged. Sure. Yeah, that's one of uh, my favorite topics, actually. So um, Recovery Unplugged, we use evidence-based practices like CBT and DBT, and uh, we use two forms of medi medication-assisted therapy, or MAT. We use two forms of MAT. One is a medication-assisted therapy, which is with Vivitrol, uh, suboxone, sublocade, many other kinds. The other MAT that we do is music-assisted therapy. And we have integrated music throughout everything that we do. And just to address a couple of things right off the bat, because I know where everyone's mind goes, no, we do not sit around just playing kumbaya all day. <laughs> uh, no, we don't teach everybody to play the guitar. No, you don't have to be a musician to go to us. But music is a direct pathway to the soul. And we at Recovery Unplugged typically only have a short period of time with people, whether that's 30 days or 45 days or 60 days. So music helps us break down those emotional barriers a lot faster. Music makes the environment more comfortable. Music brings people together more than anything that's out there. Uh, we are owned by one of the former band members of Aerosmith. So he's in Fort Lauderdale. He's here every Friday um, we, doing a concert for the clients. And our whole philosophy is this old way of treating people uh, in a cold, sterile environment isn't working for the newer generation. So we needed to adapt to the current generations, the Gen Z, the millennials, and let's change our treatment a little bit to make it more loving, more solution-focused, to help those that have a shorter attention span. The music helps with all of that. And we are seeing success rates that are four times higher than the national average wow. um, in terms of abstinence. So it's whatever we're doing, it's working, and it's not only that, it's just a kick-ass environment. It's just a lot of fun, and we show people that you can have a good time 
in recovery, that your life is not over, that recovery can be enjoyable. Uh, are there any particular success stories that come to mind? Uh, there is a number, there's a bunch of success stories I could give you, and they all are the same in, in a lot of different ways. People came from a place of despair, uh, feeling hopeless, and and they found their identity, they found uh, where they belong, and they are now functioning members of, of society. And you can't tell the difference between them and anybody else in this world, except for they might be a little bit happier, and they might be dancing to some music. Those of us that are doing the work in the recovery field, whether it's residential treatment, and I'm, I'm a huge advocate for, for Recovery Unplugged and, and, and what their programming um, is doing, recognizing that um, if we look at the, at the uh, Far East traditions, uh, specifically the concept of, of Ayurvedic medicine and uh, kirtan singing, um, music is very much uh, within that um, within that paradigm viewed as medicine in and of itself. Um, it may sound a little bit woo-woo, but but there is a vibrational medicine component that our bodies, without question, respond to. Hmm. Um, so I I really I get excited when I hear about the work that Blake and um, and his teams and staff are doing um, at Recovery Unplugged. And those of us that are blessed to do this work, uh, we meet people that are having success stories um, every single day. Um, at Central City Concern, um, our primary intervention is getting people who have truly lost everything and are living outside. Um, outside. And I'm, I'm just going to share a quick ripple here. I met um, one of my clients um, um, in the hallway recently, and this individual is no longer um, a patient of mine. Um, but I met him at our detoxification facility about two years ago. Um, he came into our agency. We provided him with housing. We provided him with medication-assisted treatment, uh, primary health care services. Uh, we provided him uh, with outpatient drug and alcohol treatment services, ongoing counseling, vocational rehabilitation, and now he works uh, in, in a role in our building, and I, I ran into him the other day, and I asked him how he was doing, and he said, I'm doing great. He said, uh, I just got my driver's license, and casually I said, um, well, that's wonderful. How long has it been? And he told me, it's been 51 years I've been waiting to get a driver's wow. license. Wow. He said, I stole my first car. I stole my first car when I was 13, and, and since that time, I've been excluded from getting a driver's license. And... I just finally got my driver's license, and what that means now is I can drive and, and I, can, I can see my daughter and grandchild about two hours from here. Oh, that's fabulous. That's amazing. Um, just real quick, so one of our taglines is music is medicine, and we do have the belief, those, those Far East beliefs, that we, we know that music and sound therapy and healing um, is, is extremely powerful, and so are the evidence-based practices that are out there, like medication-assisted therapy or cognitive behavior or DBT or trauma-informed care. So what we've done is infuse the music into all of that. When you play somebody the music that they enjoy, it actually releases the same chemicals that getting high does. So we're helping our patients get high now without the use of substances, and we're helping them to show that they can enjoy life and have that same euphoric feel just from something as pleasurable as music. How common is relapse. And, and just because someone starts up again, does that mean that the treatment has failed? No, 
it's not like a relapse wipes away all the knowledge the person had. And I think that there's a big correlation that people have that if they relapse, they have failed and they cannot make their way back. And that's not true. Uh, a relapse is very emotionally taxing and it's very difficult and it's hard and it's, it causes a lot of different things. But uh, it doesn't mean a person can't get back and take pick back up where they left off. They still have all the same knowledge as before. I think that's really well said, Blake. Um, I wanted to also say I think that that's one of the most important pieces of education for family members um, who are working to support a person in recovery. Um, you know, when a relapse happens, most people struggling in their recovery are, are going to be 10 times harder on themselves than, than anyone else can be. And so that's a very vulnerable time. And, and frequently, family members have, have a, a deep sense of, of disappointment, attachment, insert a bunch of strong feelings there, inclusive of feelings of betrayal and, and also hopelessness. And if we acknowledge that, that relapse is a, is a common part of a recovery pathway, that again, that concept of progress, not perfection, allowing people the grace to, to stand back up, dust themselves off, learn from those events. And when we see a healthy pattern of recovery, oftentimes it's a, a very brief slip, a, br- a very brief lapse recognizing that, that in today's day with, with uh, the opioid epidemic going on, that that is in and of itself uh, oftentimes very risky and may be met with uh, uh, terrible consequences, uh, including death. So that adds to the energetics uh, behind this. But I do think it's a really important area um, that we educate both our patients as well as families on as well as families on. Very good. Going back to Johan Hari's TED Talk really quickly, the core of his message is that we have to stop judging addicts and we need to, to show them that they matter no matter what. And he says, and this is a quote, the opposite of addiction is not sobriety. The opposite to addiction is connection. I, I First of all, I do have to suggest that everybody go watch that TED Talk by Johan Hari. It is, it is so good and it's it, I do firmly believe that the opposite of addiction is connection. It's not sobriety because, like I've said before, the drugs and the alcohol were never the problem. They were, they were the solution that the person adapted to, to treat their problems with. So the problem is our, uh, is our thinking and is a lot of times is our lack of connection or lack of support or our feelings of loneliness. So feeling connected or part of, and like I said before, part of a tribe, there is no better sense of fulfillment than that. To feel supported, to feel loved, is truly the opposite of addiction. Because you feel completely unlovable, and you could feel completely alone when you're in the middle of your addiction. So to seek out a group, and for me, it is a 12-step support group that I feel is my tribe. I feel I belong there. It is at work. It is around other people who have struggled with substance use disorders. Um, but find your own tribe, and you'll find, us a sense, you'll find a sense of fulfillment. That's terrific. Just real quickly, every single person who has an addiction, there are probably many more people, spouses and partners, children, friends, family members, who are suffering alongside of them. What do you want those people, those family members who are feeling helpless, what do you want them to know? I I think the best thing that I could say again, and and we touched on this a little bit earlier, is that you're not alone. Uh, Don't delay, don't wait. 
it's okay to talk about and go go get some help. And just because you're not the one struggling with the substance use disorder doesn't mean you don't need help. Doesn't mean it's not hard for you too. So do what you have to do to help yourself. Um, there's a lot of really good books out there for families. Uh, I did write a book that is meant for families. It's called I Love You More, Short Stories of Addiction, Recovery, and Loss from the Family's Perspective. And it's meant to offer, offer you perspective of what it's like not only in your shoes and other families' shoes, but also in the substance user's shoes themselves so you guys can understand each other a little bit more and learn about each other a little bit more. But remember that you're not alone. It would be my big message to them. Andy, would you add anything to that? I would just state that recovery is possible. We see people's experience, strength, and hope playing out in long-term sustained recovery in remarkable improvement and trajectory. So I think, I think it's just so critical for people to remember that recovery is possible. And whether you, somebody is listening and struggling with, uh, with active substance use, I would encourage that person to go um, reach out for help, reach out for assistance, um, and I would encourage the same for, for a family member or a friend of somebody struggling with, with an active substance use disorder. Addiction can feel like an overwhelming life sentence. If you're going through it yourself, you might feel like you're fighting an exhausting, never-ending battle. But we're here to say that there is real hope in recovery. And if you're helping a friend or a loved one go through this difficult journey, it's important to learn as much as you can so that you can encourage that person to get the treatment he or she needs. Our thanks to Dr. Andrew Mendenhall and Blake Cohen for joining in today's discussion. As always, HPE employees and family members can always find resources that can help. U.S. employees can find resources on HPE wellness under For Real Life and globally on the Global Wellness Internet site. That's all for this edition. We appreciate you taking the time to listen. Let's talk again soon.